You're listening to a podcast from St Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, as we begin a new series today, an 11-part series in Matthew's Gospel, it would be really helpful to have that reading open. So Matthew chapter 3. There's also some sermon points in the back of the news. So they're in English, Dinka, Korean and Simplified Chinese. So if they're of help, please make use of those. We're going to spend these weeks really considering various encounters between Jesus and others and how they responded to him. And as we do that, the real hope is that we will see that and consider for ourselves how we respond to Jesus and indeed how we respond to Jesus over and over again. So please do get that open. Matthew chapter 3 and let's pray. Gracious God, thank you. The good news of Jesus is news that we can truly delight in. Would you please help us, even right now, to respond to the call of Jesus? Please help us to open our hearts to him through the highway of repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Living in a celebrity-soaked culture, it, it always causes a bit of a stir when someone high-profile declares that they've now become a Christian, or at least when they're tinkering with the idea of becoming a Christian. We saw that just a few months ago when Hersey Ali, the, the prominent intellectual who really was at the, the forefront of the new atheist movement, when she wrote an essay entitled why I am now a Christian. Just this week, in fact, we saw it again with the controversial and charismatic character Russell Brand as he said that he is drawn to the person of Jesus, that he's been reading the Bible, and he's discovering that there's a lot more to Christianity than he previously thought. He said, it's taken me quite a lot to recognise that I need, you need, a personal relationship with God. Now, whatever you think about Hersey, Ali, or Russell Brand, Steph Rice, Kanye, whoever it might be, or whoever it is, it, it almost always provokes an array of responses. Some are ecstatic, you know, hoping that this celebrity conversion signals a flood of others coming to faith. Some are surprised, almost in a state of disbelief, thinking, really? Them? Do you know what they're like? Some are sceptical, by default doubting the genuineness of the claim until proven authentic. And some are suspicious, wondering what's the real angle here, what's really the motivation. And, and really, they're just the Christian responses, because in wider circles, other people are actually ashamed. They're, they're baffled as to how their friend or their colleague could have been duped, or they're sad because they feel betrayed, or they're seething because they fear that others will now too be led astray. But whatever you think about these particular individual professions of faith, whether you're ecstatic, surprised, sceptical, or even suspicious of these particular people, actually, we should in no way be shocked or surprised that this is possible or even that this is happening. I mean, please don't hang your hopes for our mission to make mature disciples of Jesus on the veracity of celebrity conversions. Please don't do that. Uh, but please don't also immediately cut them down. You know, we should not be so arrogant as to think 
as to consider that our coming to faith is actually any less miraculous. It's not up to us to judge the genuineness of the claim, but it is our responsibility to pray for them. But even more, we should not be surprised by the seemingly impossible happening because encounters with Jesus that have provoked life-changing responses within the most unexpected people have been happening for over 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, men and women, religious and irreligious, those on the left and those on the right, the prominent and the oppressed, you know, the poor and the lowly, the weak and the strong, the Jew and the Gentile, the young and the old, the coffee drinkers and the tea drinkers, all of them have responded to the person of Jesus and his good news. In the lead up to Easter, that's what we're looking at. That's what we're focusing on. Each week on the journey to and from the cross, we'll zoom, on one, zoom in on one encounter with Jesus to not only see how they responded to him, whatever that may have been, but to also grapple with how we too are invited to respond to him with our all over and over again. Matthew shows us that Jesus is the ultimate king who fulfills our ultimate hope. And the way that you connect with God and become citizens of God's kingdom is dependent, utterly dependent, on how you respond to his son. We're going to see quite an array of responses over these 11 weeks. We'll consider how these responses inform or challenge our response to Jesus. But we begin today with Jesus' launch into mission with his encounter with John the Baptist, along with the entourage of friends and foes. We witness people longing for a kingdom, preparing for a king, and delighting in the sun. So first, we witness a people longing for a kingdom. Let's pick up at verse 1 of chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. In those days, that's kind of like Matthew's shorthand for saying there's quite a backstory here both modern and ancient, that really set the stage and provide the context for everything that follows. If you know, you know that in those days, God's people have been living under the oppression of one empire to the next. Now it is the Romans, before that it was the Greeks. The sort of empires that don't take kindly to their power holds being threatened. The sort of empires that don't blink are putting every boy under two in one region to death. The sort of empires that have infiltrated your religion and keep a stranglehold over your people. If you know, you know that in those days, God's people are not only under the thumb of the Romans, but even under the thumb of their own Jewish leaders. John isn't just standing in the wilderness, but in a way... They've been in the wilderness for centuries. Prophets have been scarce for 400 years. 
Some are wondering, when will God speak? When will God act? When will God restore his people, redeem them from oppression, renew the covenant? When will God establish his kingdom? In those days, in those days, John the Baptist bursts onto the scene preaching. I think it's really fascinating that Matthew dispenses with almost all of John's background story. You can read about that in the Gospel of Luke. And maybe he does that because he assumes people will know it, but possibly because he wants to focus on the message of John's mission. Do you know he bursts onto the scene preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the message that Matthew wants us to sit up and take notice of. Kingdom of heaven, that phrase, that terminology is is Matthew's way of of bundling up all of Israel's hopes of that time for a, a long promise by God when God would establish his kingdom on earth, when God would reign and they would be free to be his people and he their God. I want you to note that even the quirky details about John the Baptist's unusual attire and taste for locusts, they're not there to provide some sort of interesting character profile of some charismatic prophet, some eccentric prophet. But these are hat tips. They're, they're clues that strain back in time, pointing to another eccentric prophet, Elijah. Elijah, who had similar distinctiveness of dress. Elijah, who also spent time in the wilderness. Elijah, who proclaimed a message of repentance, prepare for God's coming judgment. Matthew's helping us to join the dots. He's wanting us to see and to grasp that in those days when John bursts onto the scene, he's not only in the wilderness because of the political and the religious forces pushing him to the margins, but because he's a prophet proclaiming a message of old that there was a day coming, and now that day has arrived. Your longing for God's kingdom is about to be quenched. And the way that it will come is through judgment and God's coming king. There's going to be, of course, a really surprising twist to that judgment. For whilst there is a final day of judgment, the day of the Lord, and that will come in the future, it will not be until God's king takes all of that judgment on himself. There will be a day when God will deal with evil and sin, when he'll put things right, sift right from wrong. This day of the Lord is both terrifying and tremendous. It's terrifying news because how on earth can we possibly be ready? It's tremendous news because it means that God will sort things out. A little later on, that's the exact image, the precise image that John uses to the sceptical religious folk who are present after calling them a a brood of vipers. That's that's quite a name to call them, but a brood of vipers. He he warns them that the axe is at the root of the tree. And verse 12, his winnowing fork referring to Jesus with this, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
The image of the wheat and the chaff being separated would have been really familiar, I'm sure, to all those who are present. It was, a, it was the way in which the grains of wheat, so the good bits, were separated from the shell, from the husk. That's what threshing is. After harvest, the wheat would be beaten to loose the grain from the shell, but that meant that the grain and the shell were still all mixed in together. And so in order to separate that out, the mix would be thrown up into uh, the air with a winnowing fork. And as that happened, the, the wheat, the grain would fall to the ground and the chaff would be carried off to the side by the wind. John is saying, this is what God will do to bring his kingdom to fulfillment. And in order to get ready... You cannot stand merely on your status, your achievement, your religious pedigree or your ancestry. Your longing for God's kingdom will be fulfilled, but you need to get ready. And that's exactly what we see. We second witness are people preparing for the king. So back to verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. As John quotes from Isaiah of God's comfort to his people in exile, that the time of enslavement is ending, that their sins will be forgiven, he's saying that salvation is coming, so get prepared, make straight paths for him. In the ancient world, the roads weren't anything like we mostly have here today. I mean, I know you might quibble about a pothole here and there, but, you know, their roads were really bad. They were, they were basically rough tracks on hard, beaten earth. And, in fact, almost only time that a highway was built was by the king's command and for the king's purposes. Actually, often that purpose was because the king was on the way to visit. So they literally needed to get out there and build the road in order to make a way and a welcome for him. That's likely the image that John has in mind, as he quotes from Isaiah, of making straight paths for him. In fact, that's likely how John sees his entire mission. He's preparing the way by calling God's people to get ready. But of course, the way that John is urging them to get ready is not by actually for them to get out and preparing and physically building a road for this promised king, but that they would prepare a highway in their hearts through a baptism of repentance. Pick up at verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. So this type of baptism is totally new. It's a really religious innovation. In the past, Gentiles who became converts to Judaism, they were baptised. Actually, they, they took a bath, but it was a form of baptism. The men were circumcised and they offered uh, a sacrifice. And that baptism, that was a symbol of them being united to God's people who had been brought out of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, that's what the baptism symbolised for outsiders coming into Judaism. But as Michael Green puts it, a John's baptism, so that which is offered and we read about here, is different to that in at least three ways. Uh, one, John's baptism was for the Jews, not for outsiders. It's pointing that salvation is not on the basis of heritage or status. Two, John's baptism was not something self-administered when they would just take a bath, 
but it had to be administered by someone else. For fitness for God's kingdom is not something you can do for yourself. Three, John's baptism didn't point back in time to the passing through the Red Sea, but pointed forward to the hope of deliverance from coming judgment. So this is a a comprehensive turning back to the Lord, turning away from the things not of God, and turning to God with all your heart. John's rebuke to the Pharisees and Sadducees is what? To produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. Repentance means committing to a complete and lasting change of heart and life. Now, when you think about this baptism and Christian baptism, well, Christian baptism, of course, differs from this. For it's not only a baptism of repentance, however, it absolutely involves a confessing of sin, of repentance, and a turning to God. The difference is that because we know how God will make a way for forgiveness, and in response to Jesus' own command, we are baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. John foreshadowed that. John's baptism was the step to enable God's people to ready their hearts and their lives to receive God's coming King. However, whilst some went into the waters, it seems that the religious elite, so some of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, well, they just sneered from the sidelines. When John calls them a brood of vipers, that's quite the burn. I don't suggest you go out this week and call anyone that, okay? A group is hanging around work or school or something like that. Uh, The phrase is really not a compliment, and even Jesus picks it up at different stages. This is actually likely an allusion to something in Jeremiah of snakes uh, slithering out of a forest at breakneck speed as the trees are felled and come crashing down. John, in a way, is saying, judgment is coming, you're scurrying around, but you can't escape. Your religiousness won't save you. Your good deeds won't save you. Not even having Abraham as your ancestor will. You need to repent. You need to repair your heart to receive the one who is coming, the one who saves. Some sneer from the sidelines. Others repent and are baptised. The father is delighting in his son. Verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It really must have been quite the scene. There's lots of things going on all at once. Everything seems to be happening all at once, in fact. Yet John knows that Jesus, that this one is the one. John doesn't want to baptise Jesus, of course. He can't fathom how this would be the right thing to do. But John relents as Jesus says, let it be so. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when Jesus says it would be proper, he doesn't mean that in some sort of British formal way, that this would be a proper thing to do. This isn't just proper etiquette or some sort of ticking the checklist of what the Messiah needs to do. It is what? To fulfill all righteousness. Jesus, of course, had nothing to repent of. He had no sin or waywardness to confess. 
But by submitting to baptism, he is not only acknowledging that his life is totally committed to God's purposes, but he's showing them and he's showing us that he is willingly stepping in on behalf of all people, of us and for us. He's pointing to a time when he will step in and lay his life down on the cross for us. When we come to God in repentance, he offers us forgiveness. That's only possible because Jesus was faithful to his mission. When the Spirit of God descends like a dove alighting on him, let's clear up a couple of things. It does not mean that Jesus did not possess the Spirit before then. He always has. It does not mean that this is the moment when Jesus became divine. He always was. Now, this is the moment when Jesus launches his mission to the cross and the Spirit of God descending on him is the very confirmation of who he is and what is his cause. The clue for that actually is uh, right there. The clue that this is the case, that it's in Jesus the longing for the kingdom is fulfilled, that it's in Jesus to whom we come and make the object of our faith, is there in the very words of the voice of God. This is my son. That phrase, this is my son, is actually a combination of, of, of a reference to Psalm 2 about the Messiah, God's king, but also Isaiah 42 of the suffering servant. This is my son, is, is those two things collapsing in together. And so God is confirming that Jesus is both of those long-awaited people in one. And just as the Father delighted in that, he is pleased, you are invited to delight in him as well. He's not only the king, but the king who came to us, the king who went to the cross for us the king who welcomes us to put our trust in him. John cried, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. But Jesus could declare, repent and believe the good news, follow me. I remember years ago now watching one episode of Grand Designs. I really do love Grand Designs. And that one episode that I watched has now been dubbed the saddest grand design home ever. It really was pretty uh, sad. I mean, I know that every episode seems to track the journey of people's lofty visions running over time and over budget, but this one really was different. The owner thought it would take 18 months to build. Instead, it took 11 years. The owner thought it would cost a few million pound. Instead, it cost over 10 million pound. The owner thought it would fulfill his family's hopes and dreams. Instead, it contributed to the breakdown of key relationships. The writing actually was kind of on the wall right from the beginning, because right at the beginning as they told the story, they had discovered that in order to get all the heavy equipment onto the site in order to construct this home, they had to build a bridge, a bridge that would kind of rival many local government small infrastructure projects. In many ways, they built the bridge to fulfil their hopes, but it only led to disappointment. But here's some good news. You don't have to build a bridge to Jesus. Actually, we can't. 
There's no amount of effort, credit or kudos that'll do. We don't have to because he has already come to us. He's already done everything necessary for us. We can look to all sorts of things to heal our pain, to fulfill our longings, to make us whole, to cover our sins. But there is only one who can really satisfy. You can delight in him, not with a faint hope that things might work out, but in the security, with a confidence that he has done it. He wants to come into your life. He wants to be part of your present and he's guaranteed your future. That we'd open up our heart through the highway of repentance and then spend the rest of our lives opening up every laneway and alleyway to him. You, we, anyone can have relationship, real relationship with God and it begins simply by responding to his call. It begins simply by turning to King Jesus and opening your heart to him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that it is in Jesus the hopes of the world are fulfilled. Lord, would you please help us? Would you help us please in the power of your spirit to see who Jesus is clearly and also our condition that we would prepare our hearts for repentance, confessing our sins and trusting in him. Lord, we pray that it might be the real pattern of our lives, that we might really rely on the good news of Jesus and that we might keep on opening up the alleyways and the laneways of our hearts and serve him with our all. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a podcast from St. Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au.